0: One line from John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, has come to mean a lot to me in recent years. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come, and grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's a favourite in prison when we sing. As I've read these chapters in 1 Samuel, we're not just looking at chapter 24, in fact, I was given chapter 22 from verse 6 right through to the end of chapter 24. So it's going to be a long day. <laughs> well, this, uh, through many dangers, tolls and snares, that really sums up uh, what David goes through at the hands of Saul. Now, we may not have a King Saul relentlessly pursuing us, <clears throat> but we are pursued by the same enemy that fed Saul's rage. An enemy who would love to put us out of action. If we don't know it, we need to know it. There is a relentless spiritual battle being waged against God's people. We are not Wrestling with flesh and blood. But we are wrestling with principalities and powers in heavenly place. There is a spiritual battle. We meet it sometimes in our workmate or in our boss or in our wife <laughs> or in our children and certainly in ourselves. And it's real. So I think there's some helpful encouragement in these chapters for when we feel harassed and disheartened by the intensity of the battle. Now remember, David is heading towards the throne. So are we. If we endure, we shall reign with him. God had chosen David to reign over Israel. He's the king in waiting. And in a sense we are also kings in waiting. And just as David's destiny is relentlessly contested so ours is. And just as David and we don't read it in these chapters in 1 Samuel but read some of the psalms to to discover the way david you you know you can read it and you can you can miss the, the the heart struggle that david is going through but when you read the psalms that he wrote out of these experiences then you can understand the way in which he constantly went to the father went to god cried out in his pain in his fear and was heard, and was delivered, and was strengthened. And we too are called. We have a, a great throne of grace. For every trial, grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. One thing David learnt is that um, it didn't mean that the fact that God was his deliverer didn't automatically solve all his problems. Um, No more struggles. What it meant is that David learnt that whenever he ran to the Lord in his struggle, he knew that God alone saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord, that he is a strong deliverer. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers. So troubles would come and they kept on coming. In David's life, they do for us. They do until the day we take our last breath, we will have troubles. Many are the troubles of a righteous man, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Troubles have value. They teach us to pray. Uh, They teach us to pray God's promises. They teach us to lean on the one, on the Lord who loves us. Our divine friend wants us to bring all our griefs and sorrows to him. We heard that last week. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. This is what David learned. He does not deliver us from experiencing deep and painful, persistent trials. That's why we need patience and great endurance because we're not delivered from experiencing these things. The promise is that the Lord will deliver us out of those troubles. You can't be delivered out of something until, unless you're in it, can you? So you will have many troubles as God's people and you will have many deliverances. That's the Lord's promise. So if we're feeling a little battered and bruised by the troubles that have come our way, there is truth here that can strengthen than the wobbliest knees. The beginning of chapter 22, we find David. He's the one anointed by Samuel to be king and here he is running like a fugitive from Saul. He's number one on Saul's uh, kill list. Verse 2 tells us that everyone in chapter 22, verse 2 tells us everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David and he became commander over them. There was about 400 men. So he's got a private, his own private ragtag army. Why were these disheartened, broken people drawn to David? Why did they see David as a safe place when they know Saul is out to get him? I think they knew David understood what they were going through. I suspect they believed that God was with David and that there may be hope for them if they joined forces with him. They were the poor in spirit of whom Jesus spoke centuries later. They were blessed for to them belongs the kingdom of God. All their earthly hopes were lost. They had nothing to lose. In a sense, David gave those who had no reason to go on a reason to live. And so their bitter troubles and distress pushed them to trust in David. So David's no longer alone, but what a mut- motley bunch of no hope is he ends up with. And 400 of them. They call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And look what Jesus did with that mixed bag of sinners. And look what he can do with us. <laughs> We're just a mixed bag of sinners, aren't we? He made them into saints. So never complain about the ones the Lord brings to you. They may not be much in the eyes of the world, but they will be precious in the eyes of the Lord. Now this rebel group could have been perceived as traitors and a threat to Saul, you know, 400 men with David leading them, commanding. But David never used them in such a way either to attack Saul or his men. It would have actually been easier for David if he didn't have this 400 mob with him. Difficult to hide 400 men, isn't it? Much easier to hide by yourself. But God had plans. And uh, it was clear the Lord was still with David uh, in verse 5, just before uh, God Gad, the prophet, warned him that he was to leave, go into the wilderness with his 400 little army. God was still with David and they went to a stronghold. Every time you read a stronghold, it's a place that could be fortified, offer some protection from uh, the threat of Saul and his men. We read in 22.6, now Saul uh, was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in hand and all his servants were standing around him. It's like, you know, Putin walking into the hall with all his men standing there and a few women all waiting to hear what he's going to say. We need to see how pitiful and weak the power of evil really is. You know, the souls of this world don't sleep well at night. They can't trust anyone. Here he's got this. Uh, all his servants and he says, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, he doesn't call his son's name Jonathan, he calls him the son of, sorry, he doesn't call David by his name, he just calls him the son of Jesse. Will he give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands? and command- Look, you're here because I opened the way and gave you these things and gave you power. You won't get that from David. And yet you've conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, with David. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. And none of them want to say anything. No, they don't want to because I suspect they didn't think David was conspiring. They didn't think Jonathan was against his dad. But they were all afraid of Saul. And who speaks up? Doeg the Edomite. I, I don't like the name, Doeg. <laughs> he he uh, stood by the servants of Saul. He was the chief of the servants. I saw the son of Jesse. <laughs> he wants to ingratiate himself with Saul. And he talks about how David went to Ahimelech the high priest and inquired of the Lord and the, and Ahimelech gave him a bread from the temple, the, the bread of the presence, and uh, gave him the sword of Goliath. And uh, Saul is ropeable. But here we are, Saul, he looks so powerful there, doesn't he? But he has to rely on one non-Israelite, Doeg, the Edomite. So there's a big leader on the world stage today who looks like he has great power but his support and loyalty is increasingly being shaking. He's looking shaky. He's looking lonelier and more tragic by the day. Sure, he can cause great harm but in the end he will be a pitiful and empty shell of a man and die with dishonour and without pity. Every person who grabs hold of power for themselves will suffer the shame, same shameful end as the father of lies himself. You see, David looks weak compared to Saul but Christ seemed weak before the powers of his day. They rose up against the one who was the Lord's anointed for all time and for all humanity. This is the one they, they touched And he seemed like a worm to be crushed. But it was he who crushed the head of the evil one. By dying, he destroyed not only death, but the one who held the power of death. We need to see through the bluff and realise how insecure the powers of evil are. The evil one knows his days are short. That's why he's in a great rage. The kingdom of darkness has no future and anyone shares in its work is on a very slippery slope. Now, no matter how self-assured they appear. So what does Saul do when he hears about what the high priest has done? He calls the high priest and all those priests, and this is the latter part of 22, And uh, the high priest comes. Um, He says, look, I've been faithful to David, who is the king's son-in-law. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's honoured in your house. And haven't I helped him before, inquired to God for him before? Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant knows nothing of all this. In other words, the, the, the accusation of treason and conspiracy, he knows nothing. And Saul's response, he tells his guards, turn and kill him and all the priests. And none of them act. None of his guards act. Because they don't want to be held guilty for touching those anointed by God to serve in the temple. And who puts his hand up? Doek, Doek. He's the one who dogged on them (laughs) and he's the one who now kills 85 priests all wearing... That was an incredible atrocity. And Saul, this powerful Saul just has one... Edomite, not an Israelite, who'll do his bidding. That's all. He's weak. Oh, he looks powerful, killing all his enemies, and then he turns on the town of Nob, which is the city of the priests, and kills all the the rest of them, women and children and animals, and it's a massacre. And uh, one person, one person escapes. One of the priests escapes, and uh, and goes to David, and and David feels heart stricken. He feels he feels responsible for their death because he went to the priest. And he'd seen Doeg there and he thought, Doeg's going to dog on me. And he did. And uh, David says to the priest, you come and join us and, and we'll look after you. Saul kills the priest, David saves the priest. And the next chapter we discover that David then saves a city. Now look, sin is shocking. Uh, We're hearing on a daily basis the horrors of this, the war in Ukraine and it can knock our confidence in God when we're faced constantly uh, with the evil that has been, that is at work in this fallen world. Now, there are wars all the time, but this is a war in Europe and we are faced with it and it's a, it's a big thing. Uh, we can be shocked by how cruel sin can be Grant often quotes that saying, "A mild, preaching is a mild-mannered man encouraging mild-mannered people to be more mild-mannered. Is that our gospel? Is that the word of God? Well, you wouldn't get that mild-mannered word from this passage, would you? We're confronted with the horror when a man who'd been chosen to be king over his people, over Israel, turns into a monster. I'm talking about Saul. But then it may be that we... You know, there was a, there was another high priest slaughtered, wasn't there? Christ. Christ, our Lord. Slaughtered by those who claim to be God's people and leaders of God's people. Using by the hands of lawless men, yes. Just like Saul used... Doeg, they used the Romans, but they slaughtered our dear high priest of love. What a a shock that they should crucify the Holy Son of God. I've been blessed to read the biography of Festo Givenjury, a Ugandan evangelist. Amazing story. And uh, he... He was in, there in a time of great revival in Uganda but he didn't want anything to do with it. He'd, he'd, he'd been in the church but he decided that uh, the world's pleasures looked more appealing and so he gave himself to the world's pleasures fully. And then a friend of his who didn't want to know anything about God came to Christ and uh First, you know, he he was his friend in you know his fellow partner in crime. They used to go out together and have a party, and he went home heart-stricken. But then he found himself—he hadn't prayed for three years because he used to believe. He found himself embarrassingly crying, and he said, "God, if you happen to be here, as your, as my friends say you are." Do for me what you've done. Sorry. No, his friend prayed that. Do for me what you've done for my friend. No. His friend's Festo, and Festo's his name too. His name's Festo Kivinjeri, and he had a friend, Festo. And... uh, He said, Do for me what you've done to my friend Festo. Do for this Festo what you've done for my Festo. I've got it right now. And the answer came suddenly as if in a vision. In front of me was Jesus hanging on the cross, as clear as anything I'd ever seen with my physical eyes. He was shattered. I did not just see a helpless human being hang on the cross like a criminal. I saw my God slaughtered for my sin. It was shattering because it was as if he was saying, this is how bad you are. The realisation engulfed me. He was shocked, not just by evil out there, but by his own dark heart that should bring such a death to Christ. It was overwhelming to have the one I had done that to, to turn around and say, that is how much I love you. While you were careless, I still loved you. His eyes of infinite love were looking into mine. I shook my head Lord, I whispered, you can't love me. I don't deserve it. I'm your enemy. I am rebellious. I've been hating your people. How could you love me like that? I'm the opposite to these Christians. In fact, I hate you, Lord. And Christ said, I love you this much. And that, of course, completely melted my heart. And I began to confess my sins and to seek forgiveness, only to find that forgiveness had already taken place. I was forgiven. Guilt was no longer there. Isn't that wonderful? What a shock when we realise that we are the ones who could commit such crime and then to know that he has borne it all. And we know it, we sing it. But what a shock to know such love. And to receive such love. David does not uh, let his fear of Saul stop him from getting on with delivering Israel. Uh, His men warn him, don't go to this city, Keilah, in chapter 23. Uh, But the Lord said, go. And the men said, this is crazy. And David inquires of the Lord again and the Lord says go. So he goes knowing that going there puts him at risk of Saul finding out and they'll be cornered. But they go and they fight the Philistines who are threatening that city. They strike a great blow. And so David saves the inhabitants of this city. Saul has destroyed a city, a community. David has saved one. And... uh, but then Saul hears and he's on his way to that city and they're going to be trapped. And David, he's got that priest with him and his ephod and he goes to the Lord again. If we stay here, are they going to turn us out? Yes, they are. The city that has been saved by David are going to be, they're scared that what happened to the priests is going to happen to us. So David knows he has to take off again. Constantly, it's like a cat and mouse. You see, David wants to know what God says in the battle. And if he says it, he'll go forward. He's not going to keep on running. If God says, go and deal with the Philistines, get on with the job, don't worry about Saul, he'll do it. But then having won a great battle, he won't presume on God, you know, oh, look what I've done. No, he goes back to the Lord again. He inquires again. He says, Lord, what now? No time to go, time to run. And he listens. He's always listening to God. There's no gloating in self-confidence like Saul. Now we may not have a a priest with an ephod to go to to inquire. We've got a great high priest. We've got a throne of grace. We can come to him at any point when we're in need and we can know he listens and he'll answer Might not answer in the way or in the time frame, but he will answer. And we're to be obedient to his voice. And nothing can touch us unless God allows it. God God is sovereign over all the the actions of men and evil powers. Ah, Now David's army, 600 strong. So they must have traveled a lot by night. To, it's very difficult. People say, oh, that they went that way, they went that way. And they went to a, a, the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. But there was a time just before this final chapter, they were cornered in the second... Uh, the, um, the second half of chapter 23 they were cornered and it looked like there was no way out and in verse 26 of chapter 23 as Saul and his men were closing in on David his men and his men to capture them you know you think David and the men there would have thought well it's here at the end that's <laughs> the end there's no way out a messenger came to Saul saying the Philistines are attacking and Saul said, oh, and he took off to fight the Philistines. Right at the last moment. I don't know how many people here could share some very last moment deliverances that God has um, brought them through. You know, when all seems lost, God's got us. And suddenly there's a a, a wonderful turnaround. Well, that's what happened to David and his men there. So even when all seems lost, do not give way to fear. Trust the Lord who saves. They called that place the rock of escape. God is our rock of escape. Even when we're helpless to save ourselves. Well, this final chapter, we read it. You know, there are... They're in a cave, uh, we don't know whether all six hundred because there's a mass of caves there, but it could have been David and some of his men. we don't know, but what we know is that there's David and his men hiding in a cave, and who walks in to relieve himself in the cave? King Saul, and David's men says, "Look what God has done! Wonderful provision He's put Saul into your hands." Go and kill him. No, they don't say go and kill him. They say go and do what, please, what is it? Well, I'll read it. Do to him as it shall seem good to you. But they're rubbing their hands because this, he's been at them for for how long? I don't know. They've been running scared and hiding and living rough. Here's the opportunity and God has provided it. And so we hear David goes up quietly, cuts a corner of the robe, and immediately his heart struck. Now, if I'd just snuck up behind the back door of the car at Buckingham Palace, opened the door, and just cut a little bit of Prince Charles, King Charles' coat off, not a big thing, is it? I'd be in trouble, wouldn't I? I'd be in jail. But this is the this is the Lord's anointed. Saul was God's anointed, and uh, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's. So David came back to the men, and they said, "What did you do? Just a bit of the robe? You're kidding!" And it actually says it says that he persuaded his men and did not permit them to attack, but it actually it actually. The, the Hebrew, it says literally, he, David tears into his men. That's the Hebrew. It's very strong. In other words, he fiercely defends the life of Saul and demands that no one touch him. So they would have been angry and uh, confused as to what, what David is doing. I don't know. I can remember a moment, and it was an amazing moment in my life. Totally unbelievable, where I had the opportunity to put the boots in to people who had hurt me. And I wanted to. And I tell you, it was the Lord who kept me quiet. Because I know my flesh. I don't know whether you've ever experienced like that, but you see, what seems like a providential opportunity to get back at those who've done you harm, and it's from God. He brought the man into the cave. He put the pressure on his bladder. That was not a green light to go and take out the king. It was a test. For David, and David won. By the grace of God, he was kept from doing something that would have marred his life and kingship for the future. He did not grasp after power. And he told King Saul that. He'd never conspired against him. He comes out of the cave after Saul, and tells him that he had been faithful. He calls him father. He shows him respect and homage. He said, who who are you after, a dead dog, a flea? Our little army is no great threat to your huge army. Thousands and thousands in Israel who could fight them. Why are you chasing us? May the Lord judge between me and you. And plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And suddenly Saul, and if there's got some conscience there, maybe because he says, look, he says, is he, Is this the voice? Is this, is this your voice, my son David? You're more righteous than I. You've pray, repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done. I know you'll be king. I know the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And he asked him to swear not uh, to cut him, his offspring off and his house. And we're told Saul lifted up his voice and wept. It looks like Saul's totally repented. Actually, no. <laughs> Read on. <laughs> we'll hear more. You know, David David swore not to touch his house. But he went back to a stronghold with his men. David was, He was not an optimist. He was not a pessimist. He was real. He was trusting God. He did not trust Saul. And he was right not to trust him. We ought to have our eyes open in the world as Christians, full of grace, but but wise as serpents, gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. I don't know what else I want to say because the time's gone. I know I had something here at the end that... Yeah, we're not to take things into our own hands we're not to go out to destroy people who are out to destroy us we're to leave God to judge and we need to be careful how we listen to God we need to work with God's wisdom the wisdom from above not Saul's wisdom the wisdom from below that's the devil's wisdom that's demonic the world's wisdom can seem so plausible so logic and reasonable but it's not the voice of God. If we're asleep, then in a sense, the devil doesn't have to worry too much about us. He's already put us to sleep, put us out of action. But if we're awake, we need to do what David did here. Listen, trust, obey, Stay dependent, not presume, not get too excited when we have a victory here and there and see what God can do to save his people. He is the lifter of our head. Right in the middle of that chapter, Jonathan comes and strengthens the hand of David. It's the last time he meets Jonathan. It's wonderful when God brings Jonathan's into our life people who listen to God, who can come alongside and say, don't be discouraged. Don't give way. (laughs) Strengthen those weak knees. Stand firm. Christ is Lord. He has conquered. He has overcome. Be of good cheer. Amen. Dear Father, Lord, you are speaking to us in these days. Thank you for your eternal encouragement through these ancient stories of David's faith in the living God. You are the same living God, Father, and we stand in your son, who is the the greatest son of David, and he has conquered. And so give us great courage and great expectation as we trust you in these days and see the works that you will do for your own glory. Amen.